and a big welcome to the Elevator podcast. My name is Micah and I'm Selena and together we interview high achieving personalities to get to know their journey and expertise and the barriers they have faced so far to empower and inspire you to reach your full potential and elevate your life. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We hope you all had a wonderful summer and enjoyed some well-deserved holiday. We are so excited to bring the second season to you. We have amazing guests lined up and we cannot wait to share it all with you. For the first episode, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Katrina Pollock, who is a Senior Clinical Research Fellow in Vaccinology and Honorary Consultant at Imperial College London. Katrina is the Clinical Principal Investigator across a wide range of vaccine studies at Imperial and has been actively involved in the clinical trials of COVID vaccines over the past year. Here, Katrina shares her expertise on how clinical trials are carried out, how the different types of vaccines work, the challenges to consider gender balance in a public health crisis, and her own experience working under high pressure during the COVID pandemic. We also discussed some of the gender and population-based differences in immune responses, which is a fascinating topic. So without further ado, let's dive right into this episode. Katrina, thank you so much for accepting to coming on today. It's a real honor to have you here. So before we dive more into your work, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Thank you very much for having me on today. My name is Dr. Katrina Pollock, and I'm a Senior Clinical Research Fellow in Vaccinology, working at Imperial College London in the Department of Infectious Disease. My research interest is in how vaccines induce an immune response, particularly a T-cell immune response. And over the last 18 months, uh, we've been working on clinical trials delivering novel COVID vaccines including the Imperial um, self-amplifying RNA vaccine and the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, adenoviral vector vaccine. Fascinating. That sounds really, really interesting. Thank you. So before we dive right in, would you mind just um, explaining a bit about the different types of vaccines and how it works? That's a massive question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> different types of vaccines. But vaccines are becoming as varied as, as drugs in many senses. Um, and you know, obviously they've been around for a very long time as a, as a technology uh, starting hundreds of years ago. And really the change, the, the step change in terms of vaccine technology came in the 20th century when we had lots of public health crises that meant that we had to respond to uh, new um, epidemics and pandemics, particularly ones affecting pregnant women and children and it's grown from there. And so it started really by finding viruses and then uh, making them uh, less virulent and using that technique to make vaccines. And, and that technique is still around. So amongst the COVID-19 vaccine uh, platforms that are being used to make vaccines that have gone into the clinic, you will find every different type of vaccine technology. So including ones that use whole virus, inactivated virus, even some that have tried live attenuated, but I don't think they have got hugely far, certainly not, not in terms of global distribution. And um, from there, we also then have a, a more refined or a different approach, which is using proteins or part of the virus that actually allows 
the virus to get into the cell. And that, so uh, using protein subunits, for example, and you'll be familiar with that for flu vaccine. That has been tried and, and is in development for COVID-19 and in use for COVID-19. And then we've got these new technologies, which um, have been around for quite a while, since the end of the 20th century, but hadn't moved into the clinical space in terms of actually um, producing authorised vaccines. And the two that I'm thinking of are the adenoviral vector vaccines and RNA vaccines. And if you were a betting person, I think you know, at the beginning of, of 2020, end of 2019, you would not have said that RNA vaccines would have dominated in the way that they have. I mean, it's really quite a turnaround. Um, and I think that that is exceptionally exciting. Um, and um, of course, the adenoviral vector vaccines are also very interesting. And, and uh, both technologies have um, real potential for exploring different uses in the future. Amazing. Really good introduction to vaccines. I know it's a really broad topic. So thank you for making it like, really succinct um, as much as you could. So can you talk about, so if we speak specifically about COVID vaccines, uh, maybe for the listeners who want to know a little bit more about the main differences between the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer, for instance, the mRNA vaccines. There are lots of similarities between those two vaccine designs and several key differences. Uh, viral vector vaccines use a, a viral technology. So they, they use an adenovirus in the case of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, it's a chimp adenovirus, uh, so not usually one that would infect humans. And that uh, virus is changed slightly to then be able to deliver some genetic code to our cells to tell the cells to make the spike protein. Uh, so there's a lot of components of that which are you know, really innovative and exciting. And the mRNA vaccines do something dissimilar. So the, the end goal is still to get the cells to produce the spike protein but they don't require the adenovirus vector. So they don't require that backbone in order to do it. It's just a piece of RNA code that is encapsulated in a, a lipid, which then delivers the payload into the cell and it gets translated into protein. When you were introducing yourself, you mentioned about the imperial vaccine, um, so the self-amplifying RNA vaccine. So would you mind telling a bit about this approach? Self-amplifying RNA is, again, similar to mRNA. So the, the end goal for all of these vaccines is to produce protein. And in fact, many, many vaccines are based pretty much on protein. And, and one of the things that's quite difficult to do is make proteins in a factory. If you think about proteins, and some of you may work on proteins, they're complex structures that need to be uh, produced in exactly the right configuration in order to induce an immune response if you're making them for a vaccine. And that's technically quite a difficult thing to do. If you're doing it for flu virus, um, then you, you require to grow the virus in, in eggs. And so these uh, newer technologies do it in a different way by getting our cells to make the protein. The idea of self-amplifying RNA is that you can give smaller amount of the vaccine, so a lower dose, and then when it's in the cell, it has an additional piece of code, which um, forms a replicon. And the replicon makes more copies of the RNA. So for a smaller dose, you get higher amount of protein. Uh, and this is one of the more experimental uh, designs for, for vaccines, and uh, but very, very interesting. It's been fascinating to work on it. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the results that you've obtained with the self-amplifying RNA vaccines and also 
if they could be applied for other types of infectious diseases in the future. RNA vaccines have the advantage of being something that can easily, well, relatively easily be changed uh, between different infectious diseases or maybe even different targets. And that's why the technology is so exciting and why people are so interested in working with it. You know, essentially, this is a tool for making cells make protein. So that, you know, then if you think about how our bodies function and what we might be able to do with that, it, it, it really is interesting. And uh, for infectious disease, what you need to do is, is work out what the, what the target is, what the antigenic target is that you wish to make antibodies against. Now, for coronavirus, that was actually relatively straightforward. Everybody went for the spike protein and they were proven to be right. Uh, so we've done the same thing with our self-amplifying RNA vaccine. So that um, produces a spike protein in the prefusion conformation, so it's stabilised to be in the prefusion conformation and, and expressed on cells when it's injected. And we have some early data that's currently on our preprint server and is shortly coming out uh, as a publication and, and showing really the, the safety of using this uh, technique and across different dose levels. So when we started the trial, we didn't have any clinical data to go with. So we were really um, starting from scratch and that, that uh, has meant that we've had to do a lot of very in-depth exploration of the technology. Very interesting. So um, just a, I would just have a follow-up question because you also mentioned that um, the dose is much lower with the self-amplifying RNA. Would you be able to give a comparison to what kind of dose you're speaking about in comparison to, for example, Moderna or Pfizer? Yeah, in the preclinical studies, they were using really low doses, so sort of ultra, ultra low, so 0.01 micrograms. And for our study, we started at 0.1 micrograms. And we went across all the way across to one microgram and then up to 10 micrograms to understand two major components, which he tested at phase one vaccine trials. And the first is safety, uh, and that encompasses the reactogenicity of the vaccine. So the kind of uh, side effects that you might get. Uh, and most vaccines produce some side effects, even if it's just a, a sore arm. Uh, and then the safety, which is following people up for longer term, are there any uh, unexpected events or any, anything um, that we, we wouldn't necessarily normally characterise as a vaccine reaction? And so we've, we've reported that in our study and then doing that across the different dose levels, because, of course, if you inject 0.1 micrograms of something, that's very different from injecting 10 micrograms. So that takes time and it was very carefully regulated. And at the same time, we wanted to understand when we increase the dose level, how is that affecting the concentration of the antibody that we're inducing? And it's a complex relationship because obviously this molecule is forming copies of itself. Really interesting. So I think that, you know, goes nicely into my next question, which is about more specifically immune responses. So can you talk about some of the differences in immune responses that we see between men and women? and if any of the clinical trials that had been done for COVID vaccines took into account these differences? We know with COVID that there are definitely differences in the way we respond depending on our sex. That uh, ha has had you know, real devastating impacts clinically and uh, it's really important to understand this from a scientific point of view so that we can intervene and, and make better drugs and better vaccines. And there's some very nice work from Kiko Saki's lab, and um, it's published in Nature, talking about these differences. 
Uh, and what she showed uh, was in COVID-19 in moderate infection that women seem to be inducing a slightly better T-cell response, a bit more activation of the T-cells. And men um, seem to be having more of an inflammatory cytokine response. And so, and it suggests that, I think there is definitely more work to be done, but it suggests that T-cell response may be very important in controlling the infection. And some of the work that one of my students did was just to look at what available data there are, understanding what happens to T-cells in COVID. And we found that in severe disease, T-cells in the circulation were really reduced. So there were, the, the frequency went down significantly compared with moderate disease. So the question is, you know, where do the T cells go? What's, what's happened to them? Uh, and you know, are they dying? Uh, are they being sequestered? So they're going out of the blood into the organs. And we did some uh, work looking at the uh, autopsy data that was available on that. And it, it does suggest that there's sequestering of the T cells in particularly in the, in the lump. So is this something that's happening more in, in men than women? I think there's still a lot of work to be done to really fully understand that. And we also know about autoimmunity being different in men compared with women and the impact that that's having on, on the virus and viral control. Uh, so what does that mean for vaccines? Um, well, the, the, the driving goal of developing a vaccine at the time is to get a vaccine that's going to save lives. And the way to do that is to run the trials at scale to run them at pace uh, and to and to get vaccines that are going to protect everybody. I think now there is work to be done to understand, you know, are there differences in vaccine responses between men and women? And I, I think that research question is massively underserved. There's very, very little data um, really looking at this. They're looking at it in children, for example, uh, or looking at it in young adults or older people to try to disentangle this. And I would argue that with these new vaccine technologies, we will also start to see perhaps vaccines becoming more group specific, you know, with designs that perhaps work better for a particular group. That's really interesting and it's really something to wish for. So for the Imperial vaccine, um, I, I think I read that in June 20, um, you started the, the human trials. Just for our understanding, like how to structure um, such clinical trial, do you also in this particularly then um, look at the balance between recruiting men and women? When you're writing the protocol, you have inclusion criteria that you put together based on your primary uh, endpoints and your primary outcome measures. Uh, and there's a safety and immunogenicity. And as I said, when you're, when you're developing a vaccine to meet a public health crisis, then the goal is to get a vaccine that can be used in everybody as quickly as possible. And, and that's really what has driven the development of many, many vaccines. So at the same time, we are looking to recruit a balanced and representative uh, population as much as possible. But for phase one, it's not we don't necessarily write that into the way we way we structure the recruitment. So you can do that. And if you had a particular outcome measure that you wanted to look at in, in men or in women or, or people of a particular age. But we usually would start at phase one with what's called a healthy volunteer study. I never really liked that term healthy volunteer because what's health? You know, it's it's a movable feast. But that's what the the kind of the terminology for it. But I think that, as I said before, I think there's a lot of work to be done to now understand 
the differences in in the immune response and ask some different and um, more probing questions about about these issues. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to take that into account. And as you said, maybe in the phase one, also because it was such an urgent situation, sort of optimizing, you know, the exact ratio between men and women maybe wasn't sort of like the main priority. It was just to try to see if the vaccine were working and then sort of roll it out. But just coming back to the T-cell response, because I think that's pretty fascinating, like differences between men and women. I read somewhere that the T-reg cells responses in women are different than those found in men um, against coronavirus infections. And the paper was mentioning that it was due FOXP3 protein that is encoded on the X chromosome. And that is thought to escape X chromosome inactivation. And so there were just sort of arguing that because women express more of this FOX3, FOXP3 protein, then they can maintain T-Rex cells responses better than men. So that would explain the fact that men have more dysregulated immune responses to coronavirus infections. But have you heard of this research? And what do you think about that? So I haven't heard of that research. It sounds okay. very interesting. <laughs> My research interest in T cells is usually with T follicular helper cells, which are the cells that help to make the antibody response. Uh, but I think that is that is um, a very interesting hypothesis, and I think those kind of questions is what I would like to see more of in, when we start to probe this research. Now, as we're uh, getting more and more data about differences in the uh, responses between men and women to COVID-19. I think it's becoming more clear that this is multifactorial. So there isn't, you know, we, we all want an aha moment. We all want the, the thing that says, aha, we've got it, we've got the key to COVID. And of course, this is the protein. You know, if only we could uh, change the way that protein is expressed or modulate that one particular pathway, we, we'd be done. And I, biology is never really like that. Um, life is never really like that. As all of us who work in science know, so I, I think it sounds plausible. There are always a lot of questions to test about how uh, a protein that we're looking at from an immunological perspective then has clinical penetration. So you know, it, it's nice to put the two things together, but how do you really prove that there's an association? Is it was that your take on it, or did you think that it was this was this was the aha moment that it was FOXP3? <laughs> no, I, I just I just read this and I thought it was really interesting. But again, the paper was really sort of focusing on the fact that this was just a hypothesis. As you said, this could be plausible, but that wouldn't be the only thing that we would look at. Because women and men are different on so many factors, you know, hormonal levels are different, like different types of hormones are going around the body as well. So that has a huge effect on, you know, physiology in general. So as you said, we just need to take into account the individual as a whole, rather than just focusing on one protein. The fascinating thing for me about COVID, I think, and the thing that we, we need to understand better and, and will help us to provide more of a key to it is this association of disease severity with ageing. And I, I really feel that that's a very important thing to understand. And it, it occurs both in men and in and women, but on a different level. So men are just following the same curve, but, but slightly higher. So there's a difference between men and women, but there's also a, a bigger difference between us as we, as we age. And I, I think we really need to understand that. That is true. That is a really good point. We had different discussions as well about this, that most people then just focus on the differences we have between men and women, just then rather than thinking about also the differences we have in like, yeah, social or like aging or these different parts. But another difference between men and women, what roles do our hormones play in the differences in COVID-19? Can you maybe elaborate on this a bit? 
So this is going slightly outside of my research okay. area. So I think there are some interesting questions, but I, I wouldn't want to speculate too much. One of the, the first places to look perhaps at you to start to answer that kind of question is, you know, is there a difference in the disease severity rates after the menopause? Because we do, for example, see some differences in frequency and prevalence of different types of diseases after the menopause in men and women. So those ratios can change and that can start to answer some questions about hormones. And obviously, it's not only women who undergo menopause and, and hormones change over time. But clearly, I do think that there is a very important question because we start to see some severe, more severe disease happening after puberty. You know, and, and children, thank goodness, by and large, seem to be protected from severe disease, which is, you know, I think one real saving grace of this terrible pandemic. So I think there, there are some interesting questions to be asked about hormones, and, and uh, I, I'm sure there'll be more research to come. Thank you for being honest with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. One avenue of like hormones and COVID was, I think, about the ACE2 receptor expression. So some research was mentioning that obviously there is a mosaicism in expression of the ACE2 receptor and that could be affected by estrogen levels. So they were hypothesizing that estrogen has a protective effect on ACE2 receptor expression in the lung cells heart, um, blood vessels and kidney cells, if I remember correctly. Um, so that could also be an explanation behind the less severe forms of COVID in women compared to men. But again, that, that they were just speculating. They haven't actually shown this. So yeah. I think definitely more research on that is needed. <laughs> <laughs> lots of interesting, lots of interesting questions. And with with the whole world of, of scientists, you know, focused on, on COVID that, you know, there's, there's so much reading to do and hundreds of if not thousands of papers coming out all the time. And for everyone who is interested further in tracking the differences in COVID-19 infection and death amongst women and men, there is the Sex, Gender and COVID-19 project, which is in partnership with, I believe is called um, Global Health 5050. So this project investigates the role sex and gender are playing in the outbreak worldwide and it advocates for effective gender responsive approaches to the pandemic. So we can also then add the link into the show notes here. So then I wanted to dive more into your own experience of working during COVID and also just being a woman, you know, in a very well, it's not really male dominated in medicine, but I would say sometimes as you go higher up, it tends to be male dominated. So how was that? Yeah, <laughs> interesting question. So I obviously you know, had my, my, my journey through my career in, in medicine and becoming a clinician scientist. And I took this job running vaccine trials. So I, I started in post in September 2019. Uh, and within three months, we had COVID. So it was <laughs> a steep learning curve for me. I mean, we have a fantastic team here, really, really fantastic. What we had to do was change the way that we worked in, in two important ways. So one was to make it COVID secure so that we could see uh, lots of participants at pace and at scale, but do that safely. And the second was to do things uh, much faster than we than we used to do. In both of those aspects, we had to maintain safety. So obviously for me, I then had to completely throw myself into it and, and spend all hours working in the unit. I guess being a, a woman in that context, 
Uh, I'm not sure how relevant that was in terms of our, our group working and how we our group dynamic. It's perhaps externally you might have seemed more important to other people and um, certainly you know something media maybe pick up on they want to interview me because I'm a woman doing this and that. but actually you know from, from the way we work you know we all just muck in really and get on with it so I, I hope that answers your question about COVID. It's really really nice to hear how you tackled it on and uh, how yeah great the outcome was and still is. And thank you so much, uh, Katrina, for your time, for your honest you. answers and uh, yeah, for being amazing. You're very welcome. It's really lovely to talk to you and good luck with your studies and working on pulmonary hypertension. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. We, we need some luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Katrina as much as we did. Check out the show notes if you wish to learn more about Katrina's work and her published research. We have also included the paper we mentioned about sex differences in immune responses and their link to COVID disease outcomes. As always, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast, as well as share it around you so that we can reach and empower more people to elevate their lives. If you wish to support our work, please check out our link tree where you can find a link to donate. See you soon.